text, verse 3, and then to kind of address two misconceptions that we might have as we look at this text and seek to believe it. So as you turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, let us turn to the Lord one more time in a word of prayer as we ask Him to be with us this morning as we seek to submit our hearts to His holy word. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your grace towards us. And that grace is seen in so many ordinary means. It is seen even in our singing the extraordinary graces and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in sitting underneath the reading of your word, even as we read this morning in 2 Timothy, Lord. It's in bringing ourselves underneath the preaching of your word, that we might be instructed and exhorted and admonished from the truth of Scripture. That if there be any wayward thinking in our minds or wayward way in our heart, Lord, that we would seek to bring ourselves into submission to your holy word. And so, Father, this morning as we open up First John, would you give us an extra measure of attention to give heed to these things? Would you open the eyes of our hearts in order that we might embrace and accept that which you have for us in your word this morning? We're so thankful for it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. First John chapter 2, verse 3. There is a common saying, maybe you are familiar with it this morning. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and sounds like a duck, then it's probably a duck. This is a simple way for us to say that our immutable characteristics are manifested in our outward behavior. You see, there is a direct link between who we are and what we do. Ducks quack because that's how they were made to communicate. Now, it would be certainly a funny thing to see a duck Moo. Funnier still, Molly, to see a duck in Starbucks carrying out a conversation with a barista. You see, we don't live in an Aflac commercial or in a fantasy world like Narnia. In our world, ducks do not talk, they quack. And you can know if a duck is a duck because of the simple fact that it quacks. So then, beloved, could we apply this same kind of logic to a Christian? Could we say if he talks like a Christian and if he walks like a Christian and if he acts like a Christian, then he might just be now, although I think this is overly simplistic, which we will discuss in a moment, and there are times when this may not be the case, it would seem that John in our passage for this morning may be applying the same kind of logic. Notice it with me this morning in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Notice what the Holy Spirit says 
through the Apostle John. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I wonder if you can see the connection in our text. How do we know that a duck is a duck by the way he acts? How do we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments? You see, being a duck is what makes a duck quack. Being united to Christ is what makes Christians keep God's commandments. What we learn in our text for this morning is that our condition, that is the way that we conduct ourselves, is sourced in our event that has taken place in the life of a believer, and that event has an ongoing effect even into our present reality. And what is that past event, you may ask? Well, John highlights that for us. Notice what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, the verse that immediately precedes verse 3. Let's read them together so that we can see this connection. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole word, world, verse 3, and, or we could translate that also, also by this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Notice in the text that John says at the beginning of verse 3, and or what could be translated also, this is a conjunction that connects 
verses 3 through 6 to verse 1 through 5. And how does it do that exactly? How is John connecting the truth that we read in verse 3 to the truth that we read in verse 2? Well, beloved, it shows us that there is a consequence to the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ. It shows that there's a fruit to what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And what is that effect? What is that product? It produces within us, that is the believer, a desire for obedience and a love for God which manifests itself in keeping God's commands. The connection here is that we see an evidence of propitiation. Now, just to refresh your memory a bit this morning, if you recall what propitiation is, how did we define that term exactly? Well, propitiation is the act of God by which he pours out his wrath uh, for sin upon Jesus Christ. God has removed the barrier that has kept us at a distance from God and has kept God at a distance from us. Because of Christ's work in propitiation, we can be reconciled to God. Which means then, we are no longer God's enemies. Propitiation enables us, it makes way for us to have a relationship with God once again, and for God to have a relationship with us. And it is this relationship that is crucial to keeping God's You see, the reason we don't keep God's commandments is because in the flesh, we hate God. We've looked at that numerous times throughout this text in in 1 John. And what man or woman follows the direction of someone he or she hates? It was said of George Washington that his soldiers would do anything for him, even die on a battlefield or march for hundreds of miles in the middle of winter. And why was this? It's because they loved him. It's because they admired him. They looked up to him. They esteemed George Washington as the most courageous soldier on the battlefield. It was because of their love and respect for him that they would follow him into any battle. You see, our greatest hindrance to obeying God's good commands is our lack of love for and respect of God. In the flesh, That is, in our fallen nature, in the old man, we have no love for God. Our hearts are corrupted. And we love darkness rather than light. And our actions are a product 
of this love for darkness. But beloved, in Christ we have been made right with God. Our love for God has been restored. And it is from this love that we keep God's commandments. The way that John communicates this is through the language of knowing. Notice it with me in verse 3. John says, by this we know, that is, have an experiential knowledge of, by this we know that we have come to know him. That word that John uses here for know is the word that is used of experiential knowledge. It's a word that is often used to describe a close personal relationship. Very early on in the scripture, we see the Bible use this language of knowing to communicate deep personal fellowship with another person. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, and Adam knew his wife. Amos chapter 3 verse 2, you and you only have I known among all the families of the earth. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, he, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. This concept of knowledge is used often to communicate love for and intimate knowledge of. And how can we know that we love God? We know that we love God and that the love of Jesus has been shed abroad in our hearts if we desire and even long for God's will to be done on this earth even as it is in heaven. You see, beloved, and this is a remarkable idea, the love that we have for God the Father, that is a love that is seen in keeping God's commands, is the very love that Jesus has for the Father. Since we have been united to Christ by faith, Jesus' love is now our love. And just like the love that God has for us is based on the love that God has for His Son, so the love that we have for God is based on the love that the Son has for the Father. Now I want to say that statement again because I want it to sink in. I've written it down in your insert, in your bulletin, just so you can take it home and meditate on it this afternoon. Share it with your children. Discuss it around the dinner table or with your friends at work the next day. Let me read it again very slowly. The love that we have for God the Father is the very love that Jesus the Son has for the Father, which has been given to us in the work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection and our inclusion into that work by faith. And just as Jesus obeyed the Father, because of his love for him. So now we too can obey because of Jesus' love in and through us. 
Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ, that is, a love that belongs to the person of Christ, the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our obedience to God's command is Jesus Christ living his love and affection and desire for the Father in and through us, and we take hold of that love by faith and trust in him. You see, because of the work of Christ, hear this, so important this morning. Because of the work of Christ, our obedience is no longer constrained by judgment and fear of punishment. Our obedience is fueled and compelled by the love of Christ in our hearts. The author indicates that presently we can know that we have come to know and love him if we are keeping his commandments. You see, our condition of obedience to God is sourced in our position in Christ. And we've actually seen this reality before, beloved, from the Apostle John. Remember what John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. You can look at it there in your Bible, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. says, if we say we have not sinned, remember, present, or I'm sorry, perfect tense, perfect tense. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This was referring to that past event that happened in the garden that thrust all of mankind in to the curse of sin. Remember, we sin because we are sinners. The sin of Adam, which happened in that one event in Genesis 3, is passed down to every generation. And the product of that sin nature nature, and our position in Adam is that we conduct ourselves in sinful behavior. Our sinful actions come from our sinful position in Adam. And just like our sinful actions come from our position in Adam, so too our righteous deeds come from our position in Christ. Notice again this morning what Paul says about this reality in Romans chapter 5. And I've provided Romans chapter 5 for you in the insert in your bulletin. You're welcome to turn there. We'll turn to a couple passages this morning. But Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death 
reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I trust what you see in Romans chapter 5 is that Adam served for us as a type of the one who was to come. That because of the consequences of Adam's sin, we all conduct ourselves in lives of wickedness and evil deeds. And because of the obedience of Christ, we now can live in a way that God intended us to live before him, in love and in righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ came to do away with the works of the devil. Christ came to do that which Adam could not do. By living a perfectly obedient life, he satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. And in raising to new life, he now instills within us a desire for righteousness as we are united to his resurrection life in our faith and trust in him. What we do is directly connected to who we are. Keeping God's commands flow from the love that we now have for God because of the work of the Spirit to regenerate our hearts and our being united to Christ in His, per in His person and work. We obey because we have been born again. Being united to Jesus is what compels us to keep God's commands. Being in Christ is what makes us keep God's commands. Now that we have seen this truth and this principle laid out for us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time together this morning by addressing two possible misconceptions 
of what John is saying in verse 3. What we've noticed from John is that our condition is sourced in our position. That the one comes before the other. The first misconception that we must address this morning, if you're following along in your bulletin insert, is this. Our position is not, let me say that again, is not based on our condition. Our position in Christ is not based on our condition. Beloved, it's so important that we keep the proper order here. And what is that order? Let me say it again at the risk of being redundant. We do because we are. We obey because we have been united. We do not become because we do. Now this is why I said at the beginning that the logic of quacking like a duck is overly simplistic. You see, some might understand this process backwards. But if you see it and understand it backwards, then you miss the reality that the Spirit of God is seeking to impress upon us this morning. Now, what do I mean by that? Some might say, hear this, that if I act like a Christian, then that makes me a Christian. But this is wrong and not what the Spirit is saying in our text. And I pray that you can see how subtle the devil is in, in, in his tactics. Some might say, if I act like a Christian, that is to say, if I attend church regularly, or if I give charity to the poor, or if I pray three times a day, then these acts make me a Christian. But beloved, we must understand what John is saying this morning. John is not saying, if you act like a Christian, then that makes you a Christian. He is saying, if you are a Christian, then you will act in a certain way. It is not the outward duties of Christianity that add to our position in Christ. It is our position in Christ that produces certain outward duties. And the order is so important. And it's important enough that Jesus himself seeks to maintain this difference. What I want to do this morning is to see an example of even Jesus making sure that his audience in Matthew chapter 7, doesn't get this order backwards. Turn with me, if you would, this morning over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. In verses 15 through 20, we see that Jesus is highlighting the very thing that John is saying in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. That who we are necessarily affects what we do. Notice it with me. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 says this. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree cannot, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that we can identify a healthy tree by its fruit. He is also saying that that which a tree produces, even if that root is corrupted, will be seen in what they do and how they act. You see, the quality of our works, good or bad, is sourced in the quality of our being. Who we are inevitably affects what we do. I hope you understand that this morning. I've repeated it several times in order to impress it upon you. And we can tell the state of the root by the kind of fruit that it produces. If the root of a tree is diseased, it will produce bad fruit. If the root of the tree is healthy, it will produce good fruit. If we are in the flesh, our flesh will produce fleshly fruit. But if we are in the spirit, we will produce the fruit of the spirit. But wait a minute, Jesus. What about all the Pharisees? What about all those who stringently kept the law and who by all outward appearances looked like devoted followers of God? In seeking to anticipate this misconception, Jesus clarifies for us in verses 21 through 23. I trust you still have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 7. Notice with me in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. That is to say that I was never intimately acquainted with you. I never had a relationship with you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is saying here is that just because you have the outward appearance of a follower of God does not necessarily mean that you are one. You see, there are those who work hard to win the favor of men and of God. But they have the equation backwards. You cannot earn God's saving work by working yourself. 
God's saving work is a gift distributed by faith. Just because you fast twice a day or pay your alms in the temple or wear all the religious garb does not necessarily mean that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You could be, by your acts, seeking to earn your position before God, earn your justification before God, earn your place and the the saving benefits of Christ by your works. But that will never work. Maybe I can give you an even simpler illustration this morning. The difference between these two things can be seen in the difference between building a tower and drawing from a well. You see, to build a tower, you take a brick and add it to a stack of other bricks. And the more bricks that you have, the higher your tower becomes. We might even say that if you add enough bricks, you could build that tower straight to the heavens. But a well is different from a tower. You see, a well already contains all the water you need to sustain life. A well contains within it an ever-flowing river of life. And in order to take of its life-giving properties, you drop a bucket down into a well and you draw from it. You see, with a tower you build up, and with a well you draw deep down. And it's so important that we understand, beloved, that we are not building towers to heaven, adding brick after brick of our own good deeds. No, we are drawing from the well of Christ. And in so doing, by faith, the life-giving properties of his saving work sustain our life and godliness before him. Here is the point and the importance of truly understanding the proper order of things. Our good works do not make us Christians. Our good works are a fruit of of the life-changing power of Jesus that transforms us down to the very core of who we are. You see, beloved, you are not becoming something you are not. You are tapping into that who you are in Jesus Christ. How do we know that we have come to know God? If our actions reflect a heart that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. But there's a third thing, final thing, that I want us to address this morning, and it's a second misconception that some might hear in reading this text. The first misconception is that our position might be based in our condition. The second misconception is that our condition must be interpreted by our position. 
Our condition must be interpreted by our position. I want to say a quick word this morning about the absolute nature of John's comments here. Now, we have already taken and talked about the purpose of John writing. It's so that you might know that you have eternal life. Remember it from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Notice it there with me. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John writes, in verse 13 he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now just to refresh our memories once again this morning, the word that John uses for know in 1 John 5 is different from the word he uses in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. The word that John uses in 5.13 is the Greek word oida. Now oida is used to communicate objective and absolute reality. Oida is the kind of knowledge that we are to judge the other kind of knowledge that we see in the Scripture by. One is objective, dealing with truth across all things. The other is subjective, dealing with how we experience that truth. The first sets the standard. The second is how we apply that standard to our individual lives. Now, why is that important? Hear this. We often have the tendency to switch these two kinds of knowledge. We often have a tendency to make our subjective knowledge absolute and God's objective truth experiential. Now, what do I mean by this? What I mean is that we tend to look at our own lives and say, well, I don't keep God's commands perfectly. Therefore, that must mean that I have not come to know him. You see, what we tend to do is make our acquisition and assimilation of God's truth the standard by which we judge our relationship to God. Now, let me give you some pastoral advice at this point. Rest assured, beloved, if that is what you are thinking, be assured by this statement, none of us, no, none of us will ever keep God's commandments perfectly, even me. And I know that might be hard for you to conceptualize. None of us, not even your pastor, can keep God's commandments perfectly. And our relationship to God, hear this, our relationship to God is not based or sourced in our perfectly keeping God's law. Our relationship to God is based on what Jesus has done for us and who we are in Him. And our obedience flows from this reality. 
If keeping the law of God is the basis of our relationship to God, then we will live the Christian life on a perpetual spiritual roller coaster. Always judging God's love for me on the basis of how obedient I was on any given day at any given moment. And on my bad days, I will be super low. And on my good days, I will be super high. But beloved, what this text is exhorting us to do, hear this, is to always interpret your condition by your position. We must always preach to the fickleness of our own hearts the reality of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he continues to do for us. Even John understands that none of us will obey God's commandments perfectly. It's why he wrote 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Let me remind you of those verses again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you are here this morning and you read these verses and make your experience of them absolute, you will never have peace and assurance. But, beloved, if you are here this morning and you make the work of Christ and what he has done on the cross absolute, and you interpret your everyday feelings and experiences in line with the absolute and ultimate objective truth of the Scripture, then you can be assured. Because Jesus Christ, hear this, has settled the wrath of God for you. But more than that, Jesus is working in your heart and in your life and obedience to God's commands that are sourced in his love for and desire for the Father. And that love we have this morning when we believe. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your grace this morning. We're so thankful for this truth. Father, may we always look to your word for our assurance. Father, may we see our good works and may we glorify God because 